0: Well, good morning. Go ahead and have a seat. It's good to be with you today. I hope all of you had a good Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is probably my favorite holiday. Many of you know that President Abraham Lincoln made Thanksgiving a national holiday. But we also know that's not the origin story of American Thanksgiving. Most of us know that the origin of American Thanksgiving goes back to 1620 when the Pilgrims arrived in Massachusetts. They survived their first winter there, and after a successful harvest in the fall of 1621, they determined that they should give thanks to God for his blessings. They welcomed the indigenous American Indians who helped them through that first year to join them in thanking God before sharing a feast together than sitting down to watch the Lions play the Packers or something like that. The point is, if we only consider Thanksgiving from the time President Lincoln declared it to be a national holiday, we miss the part of the story that gives the holiday its greatest significance. We can make a similar mistake with Christmas if we're not careful. If we think that the origin of Christmas involves a manger in Bethlehem, we have missed a significant part of the story. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and I have the privilege of delivering the first installment in our Advent sermon series. Advent comes from the Latin words to come, and it means arrival or coming. It refers to the first coming of the Christ or the Messiah. Our sermon series is appropriately titled The Messiah is Coming, and the title of my sermon today is The Need for the Messiah. For the benefit of those of you who might not know me, my name is George Bennett and I serve here at Harvest Decatur as chair of the missions team. If you haven't already done so, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Before we dive into the passage, I want to remind you about a few things with respect to the book of Genesis. Possibly the most important thing to remember is that Moses wrote Genesis and the rest of the Torah for the Hebrews around 1400 BC while they were in the wilderness after leaving Egypt but before entering the promised land. Moses' purpose was to prepare them. God used Moses to teach the Hebrews a theological interpretation of the events of their history as a nation. Genesis, in particular, provided the Hebrews with a historical basis for God's covenant with them. The book consists of 12 sections of varying lengths. Except for the first section about creation, the other sections are all accounts of what became of something or someone. In other words, they describe the succession from, or the generations of, a particular person or creation itself. The passage we are looking at this morning is at the end of a section that actually begins with verse 1 of chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. The bulk of chapter 5 is the line of succession from Adam to Noah. What strikes us as modern readers when we read this line of succession are the extraordinary ages of the people uh, as they lived What would have struck the Hebrews was that all of them except Enoch died. Remember, death entered into the human experience as a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, verse 19, God told Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This catalog of death in chapter 5, then, was showing the ongoing consequences of sin and the curse. For us here today, it's worth remembering that physical death is part of the curse because it's a method of restraining evil. In some pagan chronicles of Cain's from the same time period when Moses wrote, certain Cain's were reputed to have lived tens of thousands of years. Can you imagine what an evil king could accomplish in 20 or 30,000 years? Physical death puts a limit on how much evil one person can accomplish. It also puts a limit on how much evil one person can suffer. I don't know if the Hebrews wandering in the wilderness would have contemplated such implications. Like I said before, I think they would have first and foremost seen the deaths as evidence that the curse as God pronounced it, was an operation. Therefore, despite some evidence of progress, such as cities and population growth, things were not going well for the human race. Which brings us to our passage. Follow along as I read, starting with verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. There are many sadder passages in the Bible than this one. It tells us that God was grieved, not just grieved, but grieved to his heart. He was heartbroken. Why was he heartbroken? Verse 5 tells us that it was because every intention of the heart of man was only evil continually. If you are taking notes, write this down as your first point. We need a Messiah because humanity's wickedness is pervasive. Humanity's wickedness is pervasive. Wickedness infects everything. It's like water that seeps into cracks and gets absorbed into drywall and runs underneath carpet. If it's allowed to persist, it leads to more serious issues. Every intention of the heart of man was only evil continually. The NIV says, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The NASB reads, every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. The King James renders the verse, Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In biblical language, the heart was the seat of life or the control center from where thoughts, ideas, emotions, desires, and will all emanated. Everything that emanated from the heart of man was only evil continually. To borrow a phrase from an obscure theologian I follow, Brad Arndt, The thoughts, feelings, and purposes of these people were nefarious and icky. Let's turn our focus to verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Notice the deep emotion described here. Humanity's wickedness caused God to grieve. It's the grief of a parent of a rebellious child. It's the grief of a spouse betrayed. God saw humanity's wickedness from the perspective of the one hurt and wronged by it. God created people so he could love them and they would love him in return. He hardwired us to love. Love is one of our factory settings. We can't not love. God's purpose for us was to love him above all else which would compel us to obey him with every decision and action on our part. God's grief stemmed from humanity's failure to love him above all else. He wants obedience from us because obedience is evidence of our love for him. When he sees disobedience from us, he knows we do not love him the way we should. But remember, we can't not love So, if our highest love isn't reserved for God, it's reserved for someone else. What love is strong enough to displace love for God? It's self love. In our fallen state, we love ourselves first and foremost. We need a Messiah because we love ourselves more than we love God. We need a Messiah because we love ourselves enough to make God grieve. We need a Messiah because we love ourselves to such an extent that God regretted that he created people. Now, be careful. When we regret things, we typically think we made a mistake. Please understand, though, creating people was not a mistake on God's part. Humanity's mistake was what caused God's pain. A mistake isn't even a strong enough word. It was sin. Sin. It was the betrayal of our love relationship with God. It was idolatry of self. I doubt that many of us want to be the cause of someone else's regret. Daria and I have been married a little more than 10 years. I told her once that most men will trade 100 I love you's for one I appreciate you. Wives, after you get home this afternoon, you may ask your husbands if they agree with me, but I believe that's true. I think it's true because man was created to work, to contribute, to accomplish things. After the fall, however, our ability to accomplish is impaired and we have an insecurity of not knowing if our accomplishments are worthwhile. It's more obvious to us that you love us because women tend to be very good at expressing love in a multitude of ways. Daria expresses more love through making a sandwich for someone than I can express at my maximum. I also suspect that most of the husbands in this room, including me, think that we married up. I know I feel like a double-A minor leaguer who married a major league all-star. So it's not obvious to us if our work qualifies for appreciation. I want Daria to appreciate what I do in part because I want her to be glad that she married me. As much as I want her to be glad that she married me, even more I don't want to do anything that would cause her to regret marrying me. In fact, I have prayed on more than one occasion that God would call me home before I do anything that would cause her to regret marrying me. I don't want to cause her the pain of that kind of regret That's the kind of pain that God is expressing in verse 6. The King James uses the word repented instead of regretted in this verse. Repent means to change one's mind. Now, we know from Numbers 23, 19 that God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. At some level, this language of regretting and repenting is in anthropopathism which means ascribing human emotion to a non-human. That's something we do with pets all the time. You know, the Bible says that God can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, and that's true. Daria and I have two dogs, which is two more than I ever asked for or thought I would have. One day, a couple months back, we discovered that a curtain rod and curtains in our living room were on the floor. These curtains were from the window where the dogs liked to sit and look outside. Daria was trying to figure out which dog was responsible. One of the dogs was following her around and not behaving any differently than usual. Daria turned and saw the other dog peeking from behind a corner at the hallway. It was easy in that situation to suppose that the dog that stayed in the hallway was feeling guilt, but that probably would have been an anthropopathism. Guilt requires a concept of rules and an awareness of breaking those rules. I doubt dogs have such a high concept. More likely emotion for the dog in that situation was fear of being punished. The point is regret isn't necessarily an emotion that God experiences, but grief is. And it's not an anthropopathism to say that God has a heart in the biblical sense. He doesn't have a mass of pulsating muscle in his chest, but he has a control center where his purposes and his will originate. Humanity's wickedness grieved him to his heart. Humanity's wickedness is pervasive. That's why we need a Messiah. We also need a Messiah because God's mercy has a limit. Write that down as the second point in your notes. God's mercy has a limit. Read verse 7 with me. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God appears to have decided that all hope for mankind was lost. The expression, blot out, conveys the idea of wiping away dirt or filth from something that should be clean. He regarded his original creation as clean and determined that people had made it so filthy that it needed to be wiped clean again. Imagine a pickup truck or 4x4 that's finished a mud race and the windshield and windows are covered in mud to the point that nothing can be seen through them. God had allowed the experiment of creation to run its course, and he was ready to scrap it. I remember one time in graduate school when I tried to set up an experiment near the end of the day. The experiment had to run for four or five hours, and my plan was to start it and let it run overnight so I could work it up first thing the next morning. The final step of setting it up was to add a powder to the reaction flask. The powder was pretty reactive and I was supposed to add it slowly. I was hurrying, however, because it was late in the afternoon and I wanted to leave. I added the powder all at once and put a stopper in the flask. A few seconds later, the flask started shaking and making a low rumbling sound. A few seconds after that, the stopper blew out of the flask and a fountain of chemicals shot out. It quickly calmed down, but by that point, most of what I had put in the flask wasn't in the flask anymore. There was no way to salvage the experiment. All I could do was clean up the mess. I should have known better. In fact, I did know better. I made a mistake and I was immediately sorry for having done so. What's interesting when you think about it is that God knew what was going to happen when he created people. Adam and Eve promptly proved the point. One thing I wondered as I prepared this sermon is, why didn't God scrap the experiment then? And why was he not grieved to his heart when Adam and Eve sinned? I think the answer to the second question is that he was grieved to his heart, but Moses wasn't inspired to write that in chapter 3 because the focus was on their guilt and shame and on God's pronouncing the curse. I think the answer to the first question is a little more complicated, but I imagine it has something to do with God's wanting people to see the effects of the curse play out. It's one thing to hear the curse, it's another thing to experience the curse. The effects of the curse multiplied just as the human race multiplied, the effects of the curse went forth just as the human race went forth. No one could credibly claim that the curse didn't happen the way God said it would. The evidence was everywhere. Another question that arises from this passage is, why did God say that the animals had to die too? I won't reveal any spoilers by telling you that he didn't actually destroy them. Perhaps verse 7 then is a bit of exaggeration to underscore how grieved God was. It also could be the case that the animals, especially mammals and birds, had to die because of their role in creation. If you can remember chapter 2 of Genesis, God brought the animals to Adam for him to name them and look for a suitable helper among them. Even though none of the animals was a suitable helper, they were helpful, and Adam was commanded to exercise stewardship over them. They could relate to Adam, and Adam could relate to them. We still see that relational capacity in how mammals and birds can be domesticated or tamed. That's one of the most compelling arguments against evolution, in my opinion. These kinds of animals appeared on Earth before modern humans appeared, yet they were prepared for humans to arrive on the scene. It's as if the animals were waiting for us. In an evolutionary paradigm, animals that predated humans would have had no ability to relate to humans. Only selection pressure from being exposed to humans could have led to such a relational ability. Evolution can't explain how a trait could be selected before the appropriate environmental influence was present. Certain animals at least seem to have been created to relate to people. But if God created animals to relate to people, then there would have been no need for them after people were destroyed. Another possibility is that God was doing the animals a favor. Romans chapter 8 tells us that creation was subjected to the curse, not by choice, but as a consequence of Adam's sin. Maybe destroying the animals was the only way to end the curse for them if people were destroyed. Regardless of the answers to those questions, The point is, God's mercy had a limit in Noah's day. But looking to the future, God's mercy also has a limit. Advent comes from the Latin words to come and it means arrival or coming. Jesus Christ is going to come a second time. We don't know when, but we know it will happen. We're not called to be on the planning committee, we're called to be on the welcoming committee. When Jesus was on the earth the first time, he compared the second coming to the time of Noah in Matthew 24, 36 and following. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage... Until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Except for Noah and his family, the people in that time were living for themselves and not paying attention to the warning signs. They ought to have known that they were experiencing the curse as God described they would. They ought to have heeded the warning that is recorded in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 6 when God said that man's days would be 120 years. Many people take that verse to mean that God was placing a cap on age or longevity. In other words, the maximum age a person could reach would be 120 years. And that seems to agree with our experience today. In Genesis, however, a number of individuals after the flood lived much longer than that. For example, Abraham lived 175 years. Furthermore, the declaration comes in the middle of a short passage that is talking about unholy marriages. Let's read verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. There is disagreement about who the sons of God, the daughters of man, and the Nephilim were. There are three main theories that I will oversimplify for you. The one that I think has the most support also happens to be the earliest recorded interpretation of the passage. It holds that the sons of God were fallen angels who had followed Satan in his rebellion, and the daughters of man were human women. The Nephilim were their offspring. Another interpretation is that the sons of God were believers and the daughters of man were unbelievers. The third theory is that the Nephilim were ancient pagan kings. No matter which interpretation is correct, there was a problem of unholy marriages. The people of that day were perverting marriage. You might even say they were redefining marriage. Doesn't that put a different slant on Jesus' words in Matthew? When he said the people before the flood were marrying and giving in marriage, he wasn't talking about God honoring marriages. So maybe God was putting a limit on human life expectancy in verse 3, but it seems more likely that God was saying that judgment would happen 120 years in the future. Take that in for a moment. Even when God said that he was grieved and that he regretted creating humans and that he was going to blot out every living creature, in other words, when he expressed that his mercy had reached its limit, He extended the limit by 120 years. I think another reason God waited as long as he did after Adam to reboot creation was to make it obvious that he alone was responsible for the solution. God sometimes waits until situations reach a point that is beyond the ability of humans to fix through their own wisdom and power. One of my favorite examples from the Bible is when Gideon raised an army of 10,000 men And God trimmed it down to a fighting force of 300 before sending the Israelites into battle. With battle lines that small, there was no way to explain away God's role in the victory. He waited until his part of the process overshadowed everything else. That brings me to my third point. We need a Messiah because humanity's wickedness is pervasive. We need a Messiah because God's mercy has a limit. And we need a Messiah because one is qualified. We need a Messiah because one is qualified. I realize that's a bit of a non-sequitur. Just because we need a Messiah doesn't mean that one will be qualified. But if one is qualified to be the Messiah, there's a decent chance that we need one. Follow along as I read verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Wouldn't you love to have that said about you? Wouldn't you love to have a book say that you found favor in the eyes of the Lord? The truth is, it can be said about you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Notice the wording, Noah found favor. He didn't earn favor. He didn't win God's favor. As Noah put his trust in God, he found God's favor. We could almost say that Noah discovered God's favor. God's favor is a gift of grace. It isn't something we can ever deserve. It is something we can find, though. Finding God's favor tends to be easier when we look in the places where it's likely to be. I'm reminded of the story about the man who was looking for something on the sidewalk near a lamppost one night. A passerby asked him what he was looking for. The man answered that he was looking for the car keys that he dropped in the gutter. The passerby asked why he wasn't looking for the keys closer to where he dropped them. The man replied, because the light is better over here. If we want to find God's favor, we need to look where it is likely to be. We need to take advantage of the resources that are available to us. Noah didn't have as many spiritual resources as we have, but he did take God at his word. Noah was a role model for us in that regard. Noah had the righteousness of God. The Bible doesn't say that Noah believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness, but it might as well have. Noah was Abraham before Abraham was. He listened to God's voice and he trusted what God said enough to obey him. Noah and his family left their homeland and wound up in a new place where God made a covenant with them. He is an example for us of how to live by faith. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He was also an example of how to lead others to rescue. He proclaimed God's righteous decrees during the time he was given to do so, and he left the results up to God. That's the same way we are to approach witnessing. We're to proclaim God's word and what God has done in our lives and trust him with the outcome. And I might add, we are to continue proclaiming the good news even if we never see a single positive response. I mean, if you think you get ridiculed for your faith, just imagine Noah. Here's a 500 year old man who starts building a massive ark in an arid region at God's command, and no one outside of his household believed in God the way he did. Yet he kept witnessing faithfully until he couldn't anymore. Just as a point of clarification, Noah didn't build a boat, he built an ark. The Hebrew word for ark is used in three accounts in the Old Testament. There's Noah's Ark and the Ark of the Covenant. Does anybody know the third occasion? Unless you use a King James Bible, you might need a hint. In the other instance, many of the other modern English translations do not have the word ark, but rather basket. Now do you know? It's what the baby Moses was placed into to protect him from Pharaoh's order to kill all the baby Hebrew boys. So an ark is a box or a chest for storing something. The Bible gives us the three dimensions of the container Noah built. The way the measurements are presented, we conjure up a mental image of a structure that a geometry teacher would refer to as a rectangular cuboid or a right rectangular prism. In other words, from the side it would look like a giant rectangle. I recently read an article about Noah's Ark. The author is a Christian who is trying to be faithful to both the Bible and to archaeology. No pun intended. He proposed that the craft consisted of a barge or raft-like part with the length and width as recorded in the Bible and an arc or box-like dwelling placed on top of the barge that was not as long or wide, but had the biblical height, as well as three levels and a door in the side. In other words, according to the author, it was a giant houseboat. The author made the case in the article that such a pattern was a jumbo version of other watercraft from the ancient Middle East, so the technology to build it was likely available. He also made the case that such a design would have allowed water to run off or drain from the deck more easily, would have kept the Ark from capsizing, would have helped keep the fodder for the animals dry. I found his argument to be fairly compelling, especially when I thought about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box that sat in the tabernacle or the temple, but when it was being transported somewhere, it rested atop lawn poles that were inserted through rings on the bottom. It was a box fastened to a long, shallow base. In our Elder Sermon series from two summers ago, we frequently mentioned Easter eggs in the Old Testament that pointed to some aspect of the New Testament. Noah's life was full of Easter eggs. In one sense, the ark is an Easter egg about the universal church. The people who placed their faith in God as Noah did constituted the population of the ark. And they were delivered safely through the destructive judgment of the flood and allowed to live in the new post flood world. That points us toward our future as described in Revelation when God will destroy the earth and judge the unrepentant people. Then he will create a new earth where his followers can live forever. Noah was an example for us of faithful service. Noah was not just a role model, however. He was also what theologians refer to as a type. In this context, a type is more than just an example or kind of something. A type is a pattern or a forerunner. The type helps us to recognize something or someone who is true and better. Noah was a type or forerunner of the Messiah. Noah delivered the faithful remnant into the ark. The Messiah will deliver the faithful remnant into heaven. Noah restored dominion after the judgment of the flood. The Messiah will restore dominion after the judgment of fire. Noah was unique in his time. The Messiah is unique in his time. Noah found the favor of God. The Messiah is the anointed one. Jesus Christ is the true and better Noah. Advent comes from the Latin words to come and it means arrival or coming. We have talked about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. There is an additional sort of coming of Christ we haven't discussed yet. That's when Christ comes into the heart of a person who turns from sin and trusts him. If we're honest with ourselves, we will realize that our sin grieves God just as much as the sin of Noah's contemporaries. Our sin grieves God to his heart. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and following tells us, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The chapter goes on to verse 23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The situation in Noah's day was a metaphor for our own sinfulness. We love ourselves more than we love God. Our wickedness is pervasive. We need a Messiah before God's mercy reaches its limit. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The good news is that Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah. Returning to Romans 3, we read For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. An an individual who wants to be saved must receive God's gift of grace by faith. Revelation 3.20 gives us a picture of what that looks like. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The same author quoted the same speaker in John fourteen twenty three. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Pastor Ryan told us last week that trust means feeling secure. If you do not feel secure in Christ and his salvation, this third kind of Advent needs to be your priority. The early 18th century commentator Matthew Henry put it this way, None are punished by the justice of God, but those who hate to be reformed by the grace of God. Noah and his family were reformed by the grace of God and escaped the judgment of the flood. If you do not want to receive the judgment of God, you need to accept the grace of God. I mentioned earlier that Noah's Ark could be considered an Easter egg about the church. It could also be considered an Easter egg about Jesus Christ himself. When Noah and his family were in the Ark, an outside observer would not have seen them. The observer would have only seen the Ark. The same is true for those who are in Christ. When God the Father looks at us, he sees his Son. We are covered by Christ. Jesus Christ is our ark. Matthew Henry again. God repented that he had made man, but we never find him repent that he redeemed man. He never regretted redeeming people because the Redeemer is qualified. The origin story of Christmas is not a manger in Bethlehem. The origin story of Christmas is the wickedness in the human heart a wickedness that causes God grief and even regret. The origin story of Christmas is the love we have for ourselves above all others, even God himself. The origin story of Christmas is that we need a Messiah. Advent comes from the Latin words to come, and it means arrival or coming. Our desperate need for a Messiah is what gives uh, the coming of the Messiah significance. Please pray with me. Almighty Father in heaven, thank you that your mercy has not reached its limit yet. Thank you for sending your Son to be our Messiah. Thank you for sending him to be our ark. Thank you for allowing us to find your favor. Thank you for the children you sent to proclaim the way of salvation to us. Help us to fully appreciate the depth and the pervasiveness of our sin. Help us to fully appreciate what you have saved us from. Help us to not abuse your grace by tolerating sin in our lives. Help us to hate sin as much as you do. For anyone within the sound of my voice who has not received your gift of grace by faith, I pray that they will want your favor and will seek your favor and that you will lead them to find your favor. As we prepare to celebrate and commemorate the first coming of your son, show us how we can better prepare for his second coming. We want to be ready. Lord Jesus, we want you to find us faithful when you come. And we pray, even so, come soon, Lord Jesus. As we wait for you to come again, we pray that you put non-believers in our lives who are seeking you. We pray that you give us opportunities to witness to them. We pray that we have the eyes to see those opportunities when they happen and the boldness to take advantage of those opportunities. Give us the trust and security to leave the results up to you, and give us the faithfulness to keep witnessing as long as we have breath in our lungs. God, the Holy Spirit, thank you for praying for us, for translating our prayers into the prayers they would be if we knew what you know. Do the work in us that we need you to do. In Jesus' name, amen.